That was uh, Chris Tomlin, for those who didn't recognize him, his testimony. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit later. But good morning. morning. Nice to be here. Tim is on his way back from his mother's 80th birthday party, and he'll be back hopefully in time for the church picnic this afternoon. But um, I told him I would love to, to have a few minutes to share with you this morning. Did Lafayette win yesterday? Yes. Okay, very good. For you Yankee fans, sorry to hear about Derek Jeter breaking his ankle in the 12th inning, but I'm a Tiger fan, so that's all I could say. And it uh, should make the series very interesting. But a few months back, I was going through the book of Ruth in my quiet time. And as I was going through it, I, when I get into a book like this, a small book, I like to journal and just take a few verses a day and just mull over these things in my heart and mind and say, what is the significance of this story? So I entitled this, Boaz and Ruth, uh, A Love Story of Greater Significance, because as I began to get into this book, I began to see how that, that Boaz is a picture of Christ and his relationship with the church, and that Ruth is a picture of you and I. And as we get into this, I'll, I'll, you'll, you'll understand that, and it's very, very interesting. But before we delve into that part of it right there, we need to get a little background in history to really understand the significance of this story and, and their lives and how it relates to us. So some of you may not know this, but Boaz and Ruth are the great-grandparents of King David, and also that means that they are in the lineage of, of Christ. We could see that in, in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 of Ruth. They're up on the, on the screen here. It says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. Naomi was the mother, Ruth's mother-in-law. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now that's significant. As we go through here, you'll see why and uh, how God's grace is so evident in Ruth's life. But before we start there, let's have a word of prayer and and want to just get into this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, that the Bible contains these, these illustrations of who you are, of your grace, and how that is extended to each and every, every one of us. So as we spend this time together looking at Ruth and Boaz, I pray, God, you'll open our eyes and our understanding to, to really grasp the significance and it'll have an impact in our lives that is not just a nice story, but it is a life-changing story for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I shared the end of this story first just to, to set the groundwork because if you just read that, it's not a big deal. But as we begin to dissect who these people are and what part they played, it it is very significant. And this took place in the time of the judges before there was any kings. So this was in that time time period. We see in in 1.1, Ruth 1.1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the story opens with Elimelech, Naomi, and the two boys. They, they leave Bethlehem, 
which says it's in Judea. That's significant also because there's another Bethlehem in one of the other provinces, that, that, but they specifically mentioned in Bethlehem. Now, the, the word sojourn here, I was, I was curious about that because when I think of the word sojourn, I think that I'm taking a trip. But as you look at that word, it really means that to, to move, to live for a while. So they were just going to go there for a while to wait out this famine. They had no intention of, of living there forever. So they, they went there with this mindset to temporarily live in Moab to wait out this famine. Not sure how long they were in Moab. Uh, apparently it wasn't that long when Elimelech died. And there the two boys got married to a Moabite women, which, by the way, is a uh, direct violation of the scriptures. Because if you look in Deuteronomy, if you're taking notes, look this up, to, you know, just jot this down. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, it talks about how that they are to stay away from the Moabites. And um, so here we have Naomi and, and her two, two sons. They get married to these Moabite women. Well, 10 years down the road, the two boys die. And so here's Naomi, the two girls, and, and no way to support herself. So the two girls' names are Orpah and Ruth. And Orpah, the name, her name means firmness of neck, uh, possibly referring to her stately beauty and poise. I don't think she was rebellious and stiff-necked like they called the Jews every once in a while. But I think it had to do with her beauty and, and just how she carried herself in that. And, and Ruth means friendship or refreshment. And this is, this is neat because how, how Ruth related with her mother-in-law, Naomi, she was really refreshing to her and, and had that real friendship. So Naomi, Naomi hears that uh, the Lord had blessed again in Judah and to provide food for them. In verse 6, it says that she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So they began to make preparations to head back into Bethlehem. But as they were on their way heading out, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, he says, you know what? You need to return to your mother's home. As you see that in, in, in that verse as you go down there a little bit farther. Now it says her mother's home. And I thought, that's different. Because most of the time in the Old Testament, or it talks about homes being a patriarchal society, they would refer to the home of your father or to your father's house or something to that effect. But they specifically mention the mother's home. And scholars believe that this is probably referring to a, a room that's set up so that young women can go in there to prepare themselves for a wedding, to get married off. It's like a purification room and things. So Naomi is... is saying, you know what, you're going to have a better chance. So she says, you, want, you might want to go back to your own home, to your own gods, to your own people. Orpah decides to go back to her family, but Ruth insists on continuing with Naomi. And Ruth makes that famous saying in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So Ruth is making this commitment. She's not making a commitment just to, to Naomi. She's making a commitment to God. It's like her point of salvation where she's taking on the, everything that the Jewish culture and everything stood for. This is like her point of salvation, that, that she turns her life over to God there. And so as they go on, and, and this is neat because Naomi is encouraging the girls to go home. The reason why is because if they were to come to uh, Bethlehem and try to marry, for one thing, it's forbidden. And being in Bethlehem, they would probably follow the, the, call, the laws in the culture a little bit tighter and their chances of getting married would have been slim to none. Plus, if a Jew marries um, a Moabite, they're not allowed to go into the temple for 10 years. 10 generations, I should say. 10 generations. I, I think that's the time that it takes that long to purify it back into a pure Jewish race. I, I'm not sure why the significance of that is, but says, you know, go home. But she says, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to take on, I don't care what happens. Where you die, I'm going to die. And if it has to be single or what, I, I'm going to do it. So they go on and Ruth enters into, Naomi and Ruth enter into Bethlehem and the people recognize Naomi and they say, hey, what's up, Naomi? So what does she say in verse 20? She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So she changes her name. What does Naomi mean? Pleasant. All right. You guys can read. All right. All right. Naomi means pleasant. She did not want to be called pleasant because her heart was so bitter. She wanted to be called Mara, which means bitter. Do you think that she might have been struggling with a little bit of depression at this time? Just feeling a little bit low self-esteem and, and having troubles really relating to God because of all these things that are going on in her life? How often do we find ourselves in that same situation where we begin to think, you know, God, why are you doing this? Why are you bringing this onto my life and, and allowing me to suffer so much? Here I am... I, I'm a Christian. I gave my life to you, and, and yet I have to go through all this stuff. So as she's going through all this, God has a plan through this, and it's, a, it's an amazing story. So let's jump over to chapter 2. And one thing I want to remind you as we go, go through this is that the Bible is God's story of redemption and grace through the whole Bible. You know, a lot of people think that the Old Testament is just for the, the law and the Jews and things like that. When the New Testament is where God introduces grace and, and the cross and salvation. But it's not true. The whole Bible brings out God's grace and His mercy to everyone. Start in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. God could have just said, you know what? I'm going to start over. He could have said, I'm going to start over. I'll get another couple in here that will honor me, that won't fall. But he didn't. He allowed them to stay. 
Sin entered into the world. And, and God, again, showed his grace. There's story after story through Adam and Eve. Then you've got a story of Noah, where Noah said, you know what, there is not one person on earth that is, is, is righteous. Then he sees Noah. And Noah did what? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God said to Noah, you know, I'm going to start over with you and your family. So build me a boat. And that, that ark that he built is such a picture of God's grace because everyone that was in that boat was saved from the flood. Everyone that was outside that boat, what happened to them? They drowned. So that's a picture of God's salvation. You want to you be saved? You get in the boat. And that's a picture of God's grace. Then we've got Abraham where he's asked by God to go and sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, on an altar as a, as a sacrifice to the Lord. But just when he's ready to plunge that knife into him, the Lord says, "Not you are obedient, and I want to show some grace to you. There's a ram caught in the thickets there. Take that, and that ram will die in Isaac's place. So over and over and over again, throughout the whole Testament, we see God's grace in action. How many times did the Israelites reject God and complain and moan and, you know, Carry on, many, many times. But yet God accepted them back. When they repented and turned their hearts over to Him, He received them back in, into the, His family. So, here's another picture. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, another picture of God's grace. He says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Let's look at Boaz for a, meaning, for a minute. The meaning of his name is unsure, but a lot of people think it's, it's, uh, it, the meaning is in him is strength or in the strength of the Lord I trust. Those are the two definitions that, that I could come up with. But more than that, the thing that struck me as I was reading this, the, the, the term that he was a man of standing. And Boaz had some some outstanding qualities. The Hebrew word is this long phrase up here. It's translated a man of standing in this part here, but it's literally a mighty man of valor. And it's the same word used for Gideon and Jephthah. And if you look in Judges, if you're taking notes, look up these verses, Judges 6.12 and Judges 11.1. And you'll see that same word being used for these two warriors. And so Boaz was lumped into this as a mighty man of valor, uh, capable in his community and lived an ex- ex- exploratory... Uh, How do I say that? Mind blank here. But he lived an exceptional life. Anyways. Exemplary, Exemplary thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Edit that from the tape, would you? But Boaz, as as we look back at history, we see Boaz. He's a man of standing. He's a man of valor. He's a man that was well-respected in his community. And as I was meditating on it, I thought, you know, how do I want people to remember me? If If my name were to ever be written down in a history book, which I doubt that it ever will be, my name wasn't even online for years and years until I, I became on staff here and it was finally posted online. I, I Googled my name. It never came up. 
My nephew who was in jail came up. My, uh, no. All these other names came up, but my name never came up. I am nobody in the world's view. But I want to leave a mark on this world that says that I made a difference in people's lives. As you look at these people, B.P. Roberts says, I told you I was sick. And the other, the other guy says, rest in peace, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. And these are, these are what they were remembered for. But I want to be remembered as somebody who made a difference in somebody's life. I don't want to just be content to, to be remembered as a, as a guy that could sing well or a guy that, that loved to ride his bike or a guy that, that was a missionary or whatever. I don't, that, that's nothing. But if I made a difference in your life, if I made a difference in somebody's life, that's what's the important thing is. And I pray that that's the same for each of us. Because we all have our gifts and talents that, that God is using. But if we're using them for ourselves, our own, ability, our own strength and, and our own edification, instead of what God wants them to be used for, it'll amount to nothing. It'll burn in the end. So as Boaz is here... He had a, an important role. He was called a man of standing, and he stood out among the people in Bethlehem as a man of means, compassion, wisdom, integrity, and understanding. He actually cared about, and they, and they respected him. He cared about other people. As we see in verse 4, it says that Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they all called back. And so this shows that, that he had uh, a respect, a rapport with those that, that worked for him. So that's Boaz. Well, then we have Naomi over here who had lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her boys. One of her daughter-in-laws stayed back, so she has only Ruth. And back then, they didn't have life insurance policies. They didn't have Social Security. They didn't have welfare. So how is she going to be cared for? The widows in those days were, were, unless you had children, you would become on poverty. You'd become homeless. You'd become, your, your land would be sold to pay the taxes, and you, lots of times you would become a slave to pay off the debts that your family owed. So here's Naomi, and, and she just doesn't know how she's going to provide for her and Ruth. She's considered an outcast. And Ruth says one day that she's going to go out and glean in any field that someone would let her into. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, Let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. And the people who went around gleaning in, in these fields were usually the ones that society had rejected. They were often mocked, ridiculed, and even molested. By the, by the paid labors. And so this is the humiliating situation that Naomi and Ruth found themselves in, that they had to stoop to that level where they were going into begging and picking up the leftover grain on the ground. And they wouldn't get very much. As I was reading some of this, they, they would get maybe a pint a day of grain. And, uh, but... Time not permitting, I can't go into this whole thing, but it is amazing to see how much uh, God's grace intervened in this. 
Now, I want to I share something. The other day, a couple weeks ago, um, my son Caleb went to the Tuesday morning uh, meeting at uh, TikTok. And Jack Templeton was, was relating he had, that he had a couple books, one talking about creation and one about the flood. And he said, man, I, I loaned them to somebody, and I don't know where it's at. I don't know who it was. I can't remember who it was. It's not that he's getting old. I do the same thing, Jack. Sorry. But then my son was thinking, he said, Jack, I think I have those books. <laughs> and, and, uh, and what are the coincidences? What's the chances that, that this was the first time that Caleb went on a Tuesday morning? The very first time. And it was the time that Jack mentioned about his books. That's not a coincidence. I think God ordained that because Jack wanted those books back and, and the Lord worked it out that he would be able to find it. I'm sure if I were to go around the room this morning, there would be, many of you would have stories that appeared to be coincidences or just chance meetings, things like that, but you realize that this wasn't just by chance. Because there are no, there is not for the Christian, for anyone, just circumstantial chances. God has a plan. It says in Psalm that from the beginning, before we were even formed, He had our days numbered. He had that all planned out for us. Yeah, a couple, about a month or so ago, Helen and I, were had, we had a meeting here. We went over time a few minutes. And as, as we were packing, as I was packing up my stuff, Helen went out to put stuff in the car. She comes running back in and saying, hey, Tim, there's a guy laying out in the middle of the road out here, just right out here in the corner, Porter and March here. He fell off his bike. So I go out there and I'm talking to the guy. His name happens to be Rab. And I, I said, hey, how you doing? You know, what's going on? He says, oh, give me a couple minutes. I'll, I'll be able to get up and, and I'll, I'll get back home. And I could tell he was in a lot of pain. So as I'm, I'm standing there talking to him, I said, you know what? I've got a bike rack on my car right there. You know, let me, let me put it on my rack and I'll take you home. So after about a couple minutes, he said, okay, I'll let you do that. So I get him in the car and, and I'm taking him home. He says, what a coincidence that you happen to be here. I said, you know what? We were just talking about that in our meeting, that there is no such thing as just a coincidence. What are the chances that I went overtime in my meeting? If I would have been five minutes earlier, I would have been gone. And what are the chances that I had my bike rack on the car at that moment and that I could put your bike on it? And what are the chances that I had my big car that you could squeeze into, you could slide into easier instead of my wife's little compact car. And I said, there is no such thing as, as a chance. And he said, you know what? You're right. I'm going to give your church a donation. I said, <laughs> I said, you know, I don't want your donation. Just We want you to come. Just come to church when you, when you feel better. So I, I went to visit him the next day and ended up that he went to the hospital and he had a broken hip. And he was in the hospital for a few days. I got to get up and visit him. And um, he lived right across the street from Scott and Amanda Mernicki. And so he went over and mowed his lawn and, and, and took care of the place for him while he was in the hospital recovering. And it was just, that is not a coincidence that that happened like that. And I'm sure that, that you know, listening, all, seeing all the heads bobbing and stuff, that you all have stories like that. And so as we have it here, it says that in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that there is no such thing. And um, I'm convinced that there are no chance meetings and things, and, and that's the, 
the thing we're running into here. In this story, Ruth just happened, it says in verse 3, to be gleaning in the field that belonged to Boaz. Let's read that. It says, so she went out and began to glean in the field behind the harvesters. As it turned out, or just happened, that she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. You know, these things don't just happen. God ordained that. And the one thing the author reminds us was that Boaz was from the same clan as Elimelech. And then down in verse 20, part of verse 20, it says that that Naomi reminds her that, that he is a close relative. He is one of our kinsman redeemers. Now, let's look at that term kinsman redeemer. The word in, in Hebrew is just a short word, G-A-A-L, pronounced Galwell. And it means to redeem, to act as kinsman redeemer, to avenge, to revenge, to ransom, to do the part of a kinsman. Now, as you look at those words there, as you think about each of those, do you see Christ in those? That he is the redeemer? He is, well, we're going to look at each of these words separately in just a minute. But one thing I want us to remember, that when God created us, He created us with a, a mind, a will, and emotions. And in order to, to be able to reason, to be able to feel, to be able to think, make good decisions, the animal world is not, wasn't given that. He said, let us make man in our image. So he gave us a mind, emotions, and will. But because of sin, it's all been tainted. It's all twisted. So that the things that we we think are good are are now bad. The things that were bad are now good. Everything is, is upside down. So as the question goes, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? If you are a believer today, we have God as our Abba Father. But if you're not a believer, Satan's your daddy. There's only two dads. It's either Satan or God. And so this is what, what he's saying is here. He is our kinsman redeemer. He wants to take us, ransom us out of that family that belongs to Satan and bring us into, graft us into his family. But Satan has blinded the minds, as it it says in Romans, he says he's blinded the minds of those that are in the world and that we can't see. If you talk to people in the world that have been indoctrinated into the world's philosophy, you you try to share Christ with them, they just, they're blind. It's like talking to a wall at times. And our emotions, they've warped us. We were warped into thinking wrong things and and our will just works against us and against God. That we don't, our natural man does not desire the things of God. And so we make decisions not to follow God. So, as we look at our kinsman redeemer, Christ, we have to look to him in order to have this redemption to be accepted into the family of God. So let's look at the definition of that word again. So the first thing he mentions in there that it it is to redeem. The kinsman redeemer is to redeem. And how that relates to us in Christ is that Christ, when he died on the cross, he redeemed us. He 
purchased us with His blood. He paid the price that was necessary in order for us to have eternal life, to be, become in the family of God. The second thing is to act as a kinsman redeemer. He accepts us into His family that we may produce a heritage. Because what was the reason is that, that they were taken in is that they wouldn't live in disgrace, that they would have someone to carry on the family name. So the kinsman redeemer was the one who would marry them and have children through them so that their name would be carried on. And, and that they could have a heritage. He would provide for the widow and her family and make sure that they had enough food and a place to live. He was also the avenger. The avenger was the one who would um, defeat the one who caused pain and agony and the separation and the death. And it was like a vengeance that was taken out on them. He was, to, he was the avenger. And he was to take revenge. The next one it says, and then in, Roman, I mean in Genesis 3.15, where, where God is saying to Adam and Eve, he said, you know what, one of these days, your relative, your ancestor is going to um, have his heels bruised, but he's going to crush the head of Satan. And that's a picture of being taking revenge because Satan came along and deceived the human race so that we're all born with sin and he's going to have revenge. Satan is going to be destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire, and, and we're going to be able to be with God forever and eternity. And so that's the revenge that he's taken it's to exact punishment uh, for wrong on behalf of and especially in the resentful or vindictive spirit. So he revenged his, the dictionary says he revenged the murdered brother. And so we have been sort of stolen and taken into, the, into Satan's family through sin that Adam and Eve committed. And now he has to uh, bring us back out of there. So he paid the ransom. The next one is he paid the ransom. Through his death, he paid the price to free us from our captivity. Because if you're not a child of God, you are a slave to sin. So he ransoms you out of that. Our kinsman redeemer, Christ redeems us. He ransoms us out of that slavery by paying the price that was demanded. And that was his death and his blood. And lastly, that he does the part of the kinsman. And part of the responsibility of the kinsman was to buy the property of the kin and to buy out of slavery the one that had been taken as a slave in order to pay back the debt and to marry the childless widow so that the family name could be carried on. And, and all of this, we could see, took place in Christ. And that's amazing. Because now we have... We have an inheritance that's incorruptible and does not fade away, reserved for us in heaven because of what He did for us, because He is our kinsman redeemer. That debt's been paid. So what does all this mean to us? Here we have a, a Moabite woman who by, by reason of her heritage has no, no right, she should, be, she should be scorned, rejected, and sent away. As you, as you look in those verses that I told you earlier in, in, earlier in, in there about uh, the Moabites, 
you'll see that, that David went in and, and killed him. His own grandmother's, great-grandmother's family. God had him go in there and destroy them because of their evilness and, and their way that they were living. So we deserve that same punishment, the rejection and hell because of our sin. So we are just like the Moabites. We're just like Ruth. Legally, in God's eyes, we have no rights or privileges that, that we can call ours because we're born into sin. So then comes along Boaz, or Christ, and redeems us and takes us out of that slavery and into his family. He's the only one that can do it. Could Ruth have, have grafted herself into the, into the family of God? No. Could, could someone else, could, could the neighbor next door do it? No. It had to be that kinsman redeemer. And there was actually two of them. There was one guy that was ahead of, ahead of Boaz. And so Boaz, being a man of integrity, he goes to the other one and said, Hey, Naomi's got some land. You want to buy it? And he says, Yeah, I could use that. And he says, Well, if you buy it, then you've got to marry Ruth also. And he says, Well, that's a different story. I, I can't do that. It won't work out right now. So you do it. You buy it. And you marry Ruth. And he said, okay, so they made the deal. You know how they struck a deal? They didn't shake hands, sign the signature or anything. He gave him a sandal off his foot. That's how they sealed it. And they had a people around him that saw him give him the shoe. And that's how they, uh, they sealed the deal. So then uh, Boaz marries Ruth, and, and they, then they have these children. So as we look back at the story of Ruth, she has no right. She has no privilege she has nothing. She is, in all points looking at this, she has, she has no right to claim any of these things. But yet God in His grace brought her in and gave her the privilege of being the great-grandmother of David, the king. And also further down the road to be in the line of Christ. Is that grace or what? That is amazing grace. Because... It's just, it just it baffled me when I read that because I thought, that is me. That is you. Because we have no rights or privileges, but because what Christ did, we were redeemed into his family. Ruth was uh, being a Gentile. She experienced God's grace in her life. And, and what does that mean for you and I? Even though we're sinners, even though we're members of Satan's family, he has rescued us out of that place and put us in God's family to receive the full inheritance waiting for us. And as, as Chris Tomlin was, was say, saying earlier, he said, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that he was there in, at eighth grade listening to this worship team and God was speaking to him. And it wasn't a coincidence that, that I, I had the same, same situation like that. I was in, in, in Bible college and I was wrestling with, uh, I was starting to like my wife, starting to fall in love with her, but she was secretly praying, God, you know what, I, I want to be a missionary, and, and Tim doesn't want to be a missionary, so you either got to change him or we got to break up. But she didn't tell me that, so she began praying for me. And as, as God would have it, I don't say as fate would have it, 
I was sitting in a, in a chapel service. I don't even remember who was speaking. I don't remember what it was that was going on. All I felt is this impression in my heart that said, you know what? I think God wants me out there. And, and so I shared that with her, and she proposed to me that minute. <laughs> no, she didn't. But it was, it was, it was a, a neat time that, that I realized you know, that God just does not have these things just as circumstances. That everything has a purpose and he ordains these things to the, the illnesses that we have, to the finances we have, to the families we have, the parents he gave us, those rotten kids he gave us, whatever. They are, he ordained all these things for a reason, to draw us closer to him. And there are no coincidences. And, and that's the thing that I want to see, that there's no coincidences. And the other thing is that God's grace is amazing. That he takes someone who is no rights and privileges or heritage and gives them the full heritage of God. And that's you and I. So as we, as we go out today, let's, let's think about those things and, um, and ask God to just reveal, just show his grace to you and, and just help you be excited about, about that grace. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this morning as, we, as we've heard about your grace, Lord, I pray that, that each one, that if there's somebody here, God, that does not know you as their Savior, that the words that they heard from your scripture, that you are the Redeemer, you are our kinsman Redeemer, that you can redeem them out of the pit, out of sickness, out of, out of hell, and graft them into your family. Lord, thank you for that and, and realizing that, that no one is here just by coincidence so they were coerced to, coerced to be here. They are here because you ordained it. So Lord, I, I thank you for each one. I pray you'll clear this weather up. We'll have a great afternoon at the picnic and then we'll have just a blessed time together. In Jesus' name, amen.